Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in one of several ways. You can go to iTunes and write a brief review. You can leave a comment on YouTube, or you can simply go to Singularity Weblog and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Matthew Putman. Now, Matthew may be actually the most eclectic guest that I have ever had on Singularity One-on-One, because he is all of the following things. So Matthew is a PhD in Applied Mathematics and Engineering. He's a professor at Columbia University. He's a Theo Fellowship Mentor. He's an entrepreneur, a poet, a jazz pianist, an inventor holding patents in nanoimaging, a startup entrepreneur, film and theater producer, and a cancer survivor. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful. So, Matt, thanks for being here, and it's I'm, I'm so happy to have you on Singularity One-on-One. Oh, it's a great honor. I'm a big fan. Fantastic. And, and by the way, uh, you're saying that you're a big fan, and I know for a fact that you've listened to many of my previous episodes. And let me tell you, when I read the biographies of people like you and what you guys have accomplished, I am incredibly proud and kind of humbled and flabbergasted to have members of my audience, people like you. It's just amazing. So thank you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. So, uh, Matt, you know, with somebody with such a diverse background as you, I was, I'm having trouble to figure out the best point to start our interview. So let me leave that to you. Okay. Oh, so, no. <laughs> let me ask you to perhaps help us start out here by telling us who you are in one or two words. Because I'm going to make you, I'm going to try and force you to pick between all those things that I listed before. Well, there are a few things that they have in common. Uh, and none, none of them are things you can measure in quality necessarily. But I think that uh, I'm a producer. So I, whether it's producing uh, companies, whether it's producing theater, whether it's producing an invention, I, I do like to think of myself as producing something. Uh, and uh, I, I am primarily a producer, um, and I am also a student. Uh, I think that what brings all of this together is that as soon as I read something or I hear something, it's for instance, people on your podcast, it inspires me to get into trying something new. That doesn't always mean that I succeed in it. Uh, but there is so much to do in life uh, that it's hard to limit myself to one thing. So I'd say I'm a student and a producer. That, that's fantastic. And let me, let me criticize you here a little bit, not to undermine yourself too much as you tend to, based on my previous research that I have done. You do tend to undermine and underplay your accomplishments, which are numerous, diverse, varied, in, and in a number of fields. So uh, I want to put that out there. Thank you, you are a producer who has produced, uh, which is very interesting, by the way, because Ray Kurzweil, when I interviewed him, he sees himself first and foremost as an inventor. Yes, well, he's done a great job at that. He has certainly the right to call himself one. So when you, when you said you're a producer, I suddenly was able to see the links between all those things that you do, and, and it kind of made a lot more sense now. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about how important is it to be so multidisciplinary nowadays like you? Because, I mean, some of the criticisms that people have leveled at you is that this is the best recipe for not ever getting the Nobel Prize in anything. Yes, I, I had that very nice comment made by who I thought was a close friend and mentor of mine, <laughs> and I didn't see it until it came out in an interview. So that's a <laughs> – he thought it was a compliment. You know, he's French. So, uh, no, it's certainly true. Um, but we live in a, in, in, an, in a time where specialization still serves an enormous – uh, enormously important role. But we also live in a time where the, those things that I'm involved with, if I had a specialty, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to achieve much at all. Uh, a good example of that is nanotechnology. Uh, 
a physicist uh, or a chemist or a biologist alone can't make great strides because it's so cross-disciplinary. And so much of what I've done, uh, so much, many of the things that I'm involved with, you start down the path thinking, oh, I need to learn quantum mechanics from a physics standpoint, and then I soon find I need to, uh, to understand cell biology. So no matter how hard I would try to be specialized in anything, those things which interest me inevitably lead to cross-disciplinary uh, studies and cross-disciplinary activities. And I think that people are finding themselves with that all, all, all the more. And we're lucky because we've, we have technology to aid us in those things that we're not terrific at. Uh, Do you think that whether we like it or not, whether French experts like it or not, the future is one of being much more disciplinarian than the past? Uh, disciplinarian in in, in... in the sort of cross-pollination between different yeah. fields and sciences and even bringing sort of an artistic take on things to sort of come out of the box as you're doing and as many others have been pointing out, out for a while. Right. You know, there's the old uh, CP snow separation of cultures um, idea. And, you know, there's been a lot of people that have tried to break from that, myself included. Uh, and I, I do think that it is the future. Of course, the more I'm involved with what I would call soft science or soft art, the more I'm frustrated with it because, uh, you know, you, you want to be able to be, to cross pollinate without dumbing down. And if you dumb down too much, you don't make progress either. And it leads to a lot of misunderstandings about very important concepts. So there's a lot of hard work in each of those disciplines that needs to be accomplished. Uh, it, it's not just learning a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's learning a whole lot of everything and that takes a lot of work. <laughs> no doubt, uh, and a lot of skills. So let me ask you about the potential conflicts that occasionally you may be, or I think often you might be experiencing it, being so multidisciplinary. For example, one of the most striking ones is the fact that on the one hand, you're a Theo Fellowship member, uh, mentor, and on the other hand, you're a university professor. I mean, Peter Thiel is well known for the, you know, trying to, to, to keep people out from school by giving them a hundred thousand dollars and stuff like that. Yes. And, and, and on the other hand, you, you work for Columbia University. Isn't that contradictory in some level? On some level it is. And I think I may be the only Thiel mentor, but I, I may be wrong about this, but I think I may be the only Thiel mentor that works in a university. Uh, I, w I would say that I'm, I'm not particularly uh, tied to the necessity to go to university. Uh, I think that it is what I really like about getting a PhD, what I really like uh, about being uh, in a university setting is the, the discourse, the, di the discipline to complete a project. Uh, it's not so much the education. Uh, we can become educated online. We can become educated even more so through experience and through knowing people and working in close proximity to great people. And the Teal Fellowship can achieve those things. Where I would like to make sure that both that goes and young people who don't go into university setting is having that same type of discipline to become uh, an expert in one little thing, which is what you get with a PhD dissertation and follow it through to completion. I think that there is a, a big idea in Silicon Valley right now that could be a little bit dangerous. Uh, and I, I'm not saying, certainly the, the Teal Fellowship does not promote this because Peter and these guys like big ideas. Mm -hmm. So they're not, they're not part of this uh, per se. But there's this idea of the lean startup, which you might have heard of with Eric Reese, and this idea of, you know, fa fail fast and fail often. Mm -hmm. And of course, I've, failed fast and failed up and plenty of my life. But to start with that as a motto instead of a motto of I'm going to follow something through to success mm -hmm. is something that I would love young people to feel that sense of commitment. Mm -hmm. A PhD is that sense of commitment, but they don't need a PhD in order to do that. So if universities uh, disappear and there are other forms in which people can learn, grow, and create and share their own ideas, then I think that's wonderful. So to me, it's all finding the potential of young people. So they're the same for me, whether it's my work with students at Columbia or my work uh, with, with young entrepreneurs. 
Mm-hmm. My personal experience of spending probably, I think, about seven or eight years in university, uh, going to a master's degree and deciding to, to stop at that level and not pursue a PhD degree, was one of disappointment, I have to say. Uh, disappointment of academia sort of la- lagging behind in some fields by a decade, in some fields by longer than a decade, uh, by being very sort of conservative in many ways to new ideas, um, and by being very restrictive and in some cases very um, almost to the point of choking innovation, it seemed to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and it's the most frustrating thing uh, to stifle ideas. And uh, bureaucracies tend to do that, whether it's a large corporation or a, a university. Uh, don't be stuck in old ways. And, that, and certainly universities can be very frustrating for that. Yeah, so, so on the one hand, I met some of the most incredible teachers and people and friends when I was in university, people who had enormous impact on my life, on, on who I am and on how I perceive the world. On the other hand, I saw firsthand some of the problems that these people had themselves and some of the problems that I had. And, and sort of that makes me be very pessimistic about the future of the university as an institution uh, in our rapidly changing technologically advanced world. So what do you think about the future of especially higher education? Oh, I agree. I think that it has to transform itself. And I don't know that that means completely online education because there are reasons to be in the same room with somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, part of me would love you to be sitting across the table right now with me having this conversation Absolutely. and I feel that it would somehow go differently. Uh, but it is also very encouraging that Stanford offers an AI class that 200,000 people and then 600,000 people take and that MIT coursework is something that when I I went to, you know, I used to spend time in India with my previous business and I would go to Bangalore and you would have, my waiter would say he was an MIT student because he was meeting with, uh, uh, with other friends and <laughs> taking MIT coursework class. And I thought it was so wonderful that he didn't have to go through the bureaucracy of getting into a university, but he gets all of this power. And that's not even interactive. So as things like augmented reality happen, as uh, as local um, meetups in order to study together, like they they were doing in Bangalore, by the way, I think that universities, if they adapt to that the way that MIT seems to be doing a little bit and the way Stanford is now starting to do a little bit, then there's a future for that kind of university. Mm-hmm. If if it's a university that relies on you know go, going through uh, you know. Enrollment that costs sixty thousand dollars a year when you're dealing with housing, and then you are having to uh, run every idea by supervisors through paperwork, and then going through tech transfer if you have a, an invention. If if you're going through all of that, then you're right. I think that that idea is going to be dead. Yeah, and, and at the same time, even from an economical point of view, the the, the costs are skyrocketing of higher education. Uh, by a, a lot faster than the inflation. Uh, yeah, well, what, what's really interesting, I was just reading in, in Matt Ridley's book, uh, the, the Rational Optimist. I don't know if you're familiar with the book. Uh, he, he talks about everything gets cheaper. So everything you look at, the price of cars, the price of food, electricity, everything in the last hundred years has gotten cheaper, except for <laughs> education and healthcare. And so both of those things, we can talk about healthcare a little bit too. Both of those things are avoidable. Both of those things could be cheap. Because, because of technology, the same reason that those other things are cheap. But we have very old institutions holding that back. Um, and not just institutions, I- ideologies of, uh, you know, of, of some of society. And we can change that. Uh, we just have to have the, the will to do so. Mm-hmm. And it's starting to happen a bit. But those prices keep going up while everything else has come down. I, I, so I think we're going to come, come back to the topic of the ways perhaps we can change that. But let me bring in another angle to the sort of contradictions in your biography. So uh, do you ever feel that there is some push and pull between the science, the scientist in you, the philosopher in you, and the entrepreneur in you? Because, for example, me, uh, I find myself to be a lot more intellectual and a lot less artistic and, unfortunately, the least entrepreneurial. 
and I'm I'm working hard to change that, but it's, it's like I'm I'm really paddling sort of against the current in in most situations with what comes easy and natural to me, which is to be first and foremost intellectual, unfortunately. Well, I don't think it's unfortunate. And actually, you are, I said I was a producer. You're a producer of a very popular uh, blog and and podcast, and that is putting something into action. It's not sitting, it's it's not being a philosopher like a university philosopher. So I disagree with you about yourself. That's an entrepreneurial act in itself, whether it's, I, you know, I don't know the finances of it, but it's an entrepreneurial act one way or the other. Um, so I disagree with you a little bit, but this is something that I fight in myself. I mean, there's part, there's part of me that would like to just read and discuss and go to conferences and d- debate philosophical points. But just, I, I, I view that everything is an experimentation, uh, whether it's playing music or whether it's doing science. I don't generally start with a model. I start with, of course, you have preconceived notions of what you expect the outcome to be, but you're not disappointed by whatever the outcome is. Mm-hmm. And the only way to discover what what is real and what works and what can be really successful is to try a lot of different things at once. And you do that through an experimental way of working. So in in jazz, in free jazz, the kind of music I play, it's it's kind of an obvious thing. You sit at the piano and... You know, you try to throw away everything you know about music past, even though it's all there. All of, your, all of my music conservatory education is all there. But you try to throw away and play in the moment and see what comes up. That's the experiment. The same thing is true in my lab at Columbia or at, at my business. That, you know, I have ideas of how I think something should work. But I'd like to do the experiment, gather as much data as I can, and see what comes out of that data. So as far as intellectually, I have absolutely no reason why I write blogs or answer questions on Quora or, you know, do do this um, interview with you other than it's a way to put ideas to something concrete. And that is an experiment in itself. So I, I, if it's trapped in my head, I find it not very useful. If it's something I can get out into the world somehow, I, I have then at least released it. Maybe that's only an existential issue, but sometimes it can produce useful results as well. So let me grab that line of reasoning here and ask you this then. How does experimentation lead to discovery, whether it's in jazz, whether it's in poetry, whether it's in nanotechnology imaging, or in any other scientific field? Yeah, I mean, those are all a little bit different. <laughs> so they're all experimentation, but it's hard to make a one generalized statement about uh, discovery and all of those. But what generally happens, one thing I can generalize, is what you leave after doing the experiment. So after you've written a poem, after you've played a piece of music, after you've run 50 tests, 100 tests, and plotted the data, when you leave that day, what you think that you have discovered is only the tip of the iceberg. So you, when you go back and re- revisit those test results, or you go back and listen to that song again, or you go back and read your own poem, or somebody else reads your poem, or somebody else looks at your experimental evidence, they find something else, or you find something else that you had no idea was there before. And this this discovery, it probably has something to do with the limitations of our conscious mind versus what, what also comes just unconsciously and through kind of a free association uh, way of dealing with things. But it's, it's always exciting to see what you can produce if you let go and just give it a shot. And you can continue to discover years later. I had somebody recently um, with Poets House here in New York, which is a, a poetry nonprofit who read my poetry book, who emailed me and uh, she was speaking about a family member of hers who had cancer and how a certain poem touched her. And it was, was, of course, very, very moving to me. Uh, The things that she got from this were not things I even had in mind. But when I reread it with this in mind, I saw that there was something unconscious about that. Mm -hmm. And she was not wrong. She wasn't pulling something that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. It's just something I didn't even realize was there yet. 
So the, you, know, you can continue to dig into the data. The same thing is true if you're, if you're accumulating a lot of data from research. Well, that's, so that's an amazing example of how you can connect with people at a deeper unconscious level that you only can realize retrospectively after that that it happened. It's amazing. Uh, probably it's a terrible place to, to move on a little bit to our conversation more to the scientific matters of discussion. Great. Oh, no, that, that would be great. <laughs> but let's, let's do so. And, and I want to ask you first, what exactly is it that you do in Columbia University? Well, there are two things I do. Uh, the one thing I do that I, I that probably gives me the most pleasure is I teach. Um, so I teach one class a, a week. It's two days a week, but it's one class. And um, this semester I'm teaching undergrads, which I, I really like. Um, so that goes back to our, our, our conversation. I, I, I try to bring them um, a less theoretical approach to science, trying um, to, to give them an idea that even with an undergraduate degree, whether they go on to grad school or not, they can apply this right away. And I show them the most exciting new technologies. I try not to put stuff in my slides that's over five years old because I want them to see what's going on now, mm-hmm. not just what went on in the past. So that's the working with students is the most exciting thing. The other thing is a lab that I have, which is a uh, a polymer uh, and nanofillers lab. So we, we mix soft materials with, uh, with uh, nanofillers uh, to do some, I think, really interesting things. The main work that we're doing now is on a regenerative uh, bioscaffold. So things that were normally uh, done with, uh, with nature, with, with biological uh, components, it's all nature, of course, but uh, with biological components, uh, we're trying to create with synthetically so that it can be scaled. So Mm -hmm. regenerative medicine for building regenerative scaffolds uh, has enormous promise and is already being done. It won't, it won't be commonplace that we can all get a new organ and we can print it or grow it at home until it's scalable and reproducible. And, and the way I think you do that is you do it synthetically. Uh, And, and so that's a a big part of what we do in my lab. Uh, we will look at new materials like graphene as well. So we try to take the newest materials in and, and combine them with very something very old and very ubiquitous, which is polymers. Is that the subject that you uh, that uh, your course is about with the undergraduate students that you mentioned? Uh, it's not about biology specifically. So it's it's about new processing techniques for semiconductors and for polymers. So. While we could, we, we talk some about very old things like how to make a tire because it's actually a very complex thing making a tire. This, it's, it's a huge engineering feat that people don't appreciate. So there is some of that, but mostly I, I speak about things like biosensors and flexible electronics, uh, regenerative medicine. So uh, things that are outside of normal undergrad coursework that can ignite the uh, imagination of students of where they may be able to innovate. Mm-hmm. And so that ties very much into the lab work. Mm-hmm. So, so perhaps we should just zoom out for a second here and, and talk about your definition about what nanotechnology is. Yeah, I, you know, I, I sometimes re, re, I, I think nanotechnology has to do with engineering at the nanoscale. So, um, Nanotechnology, and this was a little bit of the issue, you know, Bill Clinton and then followed by, by Bush had a, a nanotechnology initiative where they, where it was, nanotechnology was funded, but it wasn't very well defined what nanotechnology was. So we all struggle with the definition of what nanotechnology is. Uh, because we've been working with things less than 100 nanometers, it's, you know, they, we have been since the beginning of, of time. I mean, humans have always worked with very small molecules, whether they're breaking up particles to make uh, stained glass windows or whatever. But it's the ability to control it um, that 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 I, I think makes it nanotechnology. Uh, the idea that it's not just random chance, um, but uh, uh, although there's some, I do like dealing with randomness. But that we know that we're dealing with something less than 100 nanometers in size, or in that scale at least, uh, to exploit the amazing properties or different properties that you have when something is of that size. So that can be a material science, life science, I don't, or neuroscience, not limited uh, to one particular discipline. Mm-hmm. So then the next term that we have to lay out is 
Nanotronics. What is Nanotronics? Well, Nanotronics is a company that I started. Uh, uh, this is not a completely unusual story, uh, but I started this uh, company because I saw a, a limitation in the market uh, and also a limitation with what my previous company that was called TechPro could, uh, could do, uh, which is that we could only handle imaging uh, down to you know just around a micron, so not in the nanoscale. Yet it was important to engineer in the nanoscale. Uh, and one thing that I've, I've said that nanotechnology has not existed for very long, even though I would go to labs and I would see wonderful things. If, if there is only a, a one square millimeter of, of nanotube. A nanotube. Yeah. That I don't call that a technology. That's a that's a that's a scientific curiosity. When you can scale it and it's inexpensive to scale it, then it becomes a technology. And one of the major things is that if you can't see it, you can't scale it. Uh, and so, using atomic force microscopy is very interesting because you can see very low, uh, very small uh, features. Using optical microscopy is very intuitive, and you can use interesting image processing. So if we take the combination of those two, we can look at the entire range from the low nanoscale through the micron scale, and then all of a sudden you have a device that, is, that allows you to image uh, across a very large range. So that's what the company set out to do. It's really a soft, soft enabling. Uh, it's a software. Um, you know, we, we use some machine learning, some, some imagery construction, and some, some general optics in order to be able to image in a very intuitive way on the nanoscale. So your personal inventions that you hold patents for, are they in the field of mathematics or are they in the field of optics or both? Yes. So, well, they are both, but the the main patent, or I would say probably the, my main contribution, is a patent that was completely theoretical. It was completely mathematical. And the reason why that was is that Technology hadn't caught up to the idea. Uh, and I have to say, this is, I, I know that you know um, Ray Kurzweil very well, and of, of all of the brilliant things he said, the thing that sticks with me most, he says, invent for five years in the future, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Uh, this, I think, is something everybody should take with them if they're going to be an inventor. No reason to invent for the past or the present to invent five years out. And this is what this patent was. It was a way to reconstruct images uh, at, a, at a very small scale. And when I, when I invented it, terabyte storage wasn't something that was readily available. Sensors on cameras weren't good enough. So it was just a mathematic, a, a, a theoretical idea. Now it's possible. And now, you know, anybody can buy terabyte of storage for very yeah. cheaply at Radio yeah. Shack. I just bought a couple today. So it, it, all of, all of a sudden these things that were very futuristic and mathematical and theoretical, uh, and, and even when I was, was doing, doing this, uh, this, well, this is not something that's feasible. Now it's commercially available. So, um, mm -hmm. it was mathematics and now it's engineering. And, and where does the optics part come in it? Well, I don't actually know anything about optics. Uh, <laughs> although, uh, you know, it's, it, I, I have been very drawn to optical microscopes as everybody in science and technology is speaking for, the hundreds of years that optical microscopes have been around, uh, they have been a fascination just the same way that telescopes have been because you can immediately see it um, and, and you can immediately manipulate it. Whereas using electron microscopy or even atomic force microscopy takes a lot of expertise and a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So, and, and also it goes against some of our intuitions if you don't actually see it and process it. So optics are interesting to those of us who have eyesight. Maybe a different way would be interesting for those who don't have eyesight um, than using optics. So uh, that has been interesting to me. Uh, and, you know, any invention I have, I, I think, are just incremental improvements to what already existed. Mm -hmm. nothing, nothing special uh, in optics. I see. Well, um, I think it's an important part of the whole, though, because... You know, one of my newer artistic endeavors that I've started probably in the last three or four months is I started getting very, very interested in photography. Oh, cool. And, and I, I just fell in love with it, and, and I really, really enjoyed it. It makes me very happy. But 
that's the moment when I realized the importance of both the computer and the thing in terms of the processor to capture the, the, the object and the processor to process the information that's been captured. But before that even, the optical elements required in order to focus that data, which is usually in the form of light, that comes to that process. So are you superseding that process, the, the optical part in your... Uh... No, it's super important, and it's actually has always been interesting to me. I, I used to do lighting design uh, in, for, for theater. I, I've always been interested in, in lighting and optics. I, I, uh, I remember reading a book about filmmaking by Sidney Lumet, and I, I was more interested in how he described the different lenses that were used to make a movie um, and what how you do a long shot versus a master shot and how you adjust for lighting and conditions than I was how he worked with actors, for instance. Mm-hmm. That, that was what was really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a real part of the convergence of what we do, uh, you know, image processing alone wouldn't do it. We move through four different types of lighting conditions in one test. We use something called light, bright field and dark field, something called DIC. Uh, we use different angles of incidence to get different types of lighting conditions. We use different objectives for different magnifications. All of this is extremely important and really fascinating to me. Um, but with, without that convergence, there's plenty of software packages out there. It's the convergence of being excited and interested and, and following and understanding a little bit about optics and being able to then understand about image processing that makes it unique. So let's extrapolate a little bit more about why is it important in your view that we are able to take pictures and do in-time live imaging of objects at the nanoscale? Why should we care about that? Why is it important for you? It's important to me in, in in a... in both a technological way and a purely exploratory way. Uh, it's in the, ex, the, sort of, the adventurer or explorer in me is the, the idea of, of, of seeing and working inside of a, a world that is just underneath us. Um, I went last night to the uh, World Science Festival Gala, which was honoring James Watson, and uh, they had something that I thought would be very corny and actually turned out to be very touching. They, they did a, a a scene from uh, Doc, Dr. Seuss book, um, Horton Hears a Who, about this, you know, did this story about finding a colony of people inside one particle of dust. And I started to think about how that that is a romantic concept that's actually becoming a reality. So what we, what we, what we can discover in something very small that we haven't before. Now, how that translates to technology, uh, it can help prevent disease because we'll see how things aggregate and how things are behave before they do any damage to the body. Uh, we can have drug delivery systems. We can have things the size of cells so that you can, uh, you know, re- replace damage in, in the, in the body. You can have materials that have, uh, superconductance. Uh, you can have metamaterials that have uh, a refractive index that is can can make things invisible to certain types of electromagnetic waves. Um, you can have extremely strong materials that are completely flexible. I love the idea of a flexible world. Things are still too rigid for me. Uh, we all have this, I, I think, love of, you know, I, I've recently gone back to reading books in print. I was a very early adopter of the Kindle. I love the idea of, of it. But I, I, I realize that I, that I do miss paper. Um, now, I won't miss paper when we have flexible electronics that look as good as e-ink does, and yet it's completely flexible and I can fold it up and I can crumple it up and throw it into my bag. That's only enabled through an understanding of what's going on in the nanoscale. So there are many things from electronics to biosensors. All this stuff is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So... Um, one of my other previous guests actually on this show, James Harvey, made a statement that I've remembered and I kind of really like. And I want to ask you to see if you agree with it or not. And he said that our analog universe seems to exhibit infinite resolution, both zooming in and zooming out. Well, yes, it seems like that to us, but I always... I can't think in infinities. Some people can, and it's 
maybe a, a limitation of mine or maybe it's an advantage technologically. But I, I, I tend to think of everything as, um, you know, d- discrete units. It's one reason why I like prefer uh, linear algebra to calculus, for instance. So I, there is a different way of thinking, those who think of a discrete universe versus uh, an infinite universe. And absolutely, as Feynman says, there's plenty of room at the bottom. And so as far as any practical way of thinking, we have a long way to go. I was with somebody last night who worked at uh, the Large Hadron Collider, and somebody asked him, well, now that you've discovered the Higgs, can you see anything else? We don't know if we can see anything else, but there's certainly more to be seen. Uh, So, you know, we don't have to worry about getting too far down. We have plenty of ways to go. Now, whether I think about that in terms of infinities is different. I think about it in terms of steps, um, and I think about and and that makes it that makes it achievable for me or makes it accessible for me to think in terms of steps. Mm-hmm. So let me see where can we fit concepts such as the technological singularity and indefinite life extension somewhere along those steps that you foresee in the next few years or decades of the future? Yeah. There, there's something that, you know, I, I've, I've really evolved my thinking, and my thinking has very much evolved about the technological singularity. Uh, and it ties very much to what I said about experimenting and not knowing what you're going to get, but knowing that there are things that you will continue to discover after that experiment is completed. So if, if we're looking at, you know, work that Aubrey de Grey is doing or work that is being done on life extension and, you know, very, you know, extreme life extension, uh, it is, it, it's not so much thinking about living forever um, as it's thinking about, living as long as we can possibly live because we don't, there, there's, you know, there's an inherent nature to not wanting to die, nor should we want to die. I mean, I, so whatever comes out of that research, there will be thousands, millions of steps in there, all of which will be useful, all of which will aid science in many different ways. A lot of it will be inductive. Um, it won't be what these labs set out to do. Or to find, we will find other things along the way. We may, uh, you know, I know an uh, HIV researcher who, for instance, who thought he was very much onto a cure for HIV back in the early 90s. His research is now a lot of that work he's done. He's transported to some from to cancer research because he found some interesting things. So whatever work is being done and setting the bar very high is wonderful because we're going to make incredible progress along the way. The technological singularity, I think, is inevitable. Um, I have no idea when it will happen. Um, it's inevitable. Uh, but I'm interested in, in picking that data that of all of these uh, with other people and collaborating with other people to make incremental change along the way. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this then. Uh, do you feel that Let's take those two issues separately, one step at a time. So do you think that your very important work in nano-scale uh, imaging technologies can actually hasten the technological singularity in one way or another uh, and or maybe contribute to other relevant uh, breakthroughs in the fields of uh, neuroscience or mind uploading or artificial intelligence. And I mean, by let me try and set up the context, because, you know, people have said that, say, for example, if we just take and focus on mind uploading for a second, we need three things, more or less. We need, first of all, the ability to capture accurately, at the nanoscale perhaps, a very accurate image of the brain, and, right, and how it works. Then we need to figure out how to put the parts together. And finally, we need a, a, a piece of equipment, a computer, a processor where we can run that. Yes. And yes. So you're providing the first step, which is the imaging step. Right. Well, we're one, we're one of many, many 
um, groups that are. I mean, we're, you know, we're certainly not the only ones. Um, but yes, that's, it's, it's, I, I do believe that that, that is true. If what, if we can, now there, there are different issues with this about whether that is the best approach. It, you know, if, if just imaging the entire brain, knowing every synapse, every, every connection, imaging that all will lead to, uh, the, the fastest and most viable way to upload. Um, it may or may not. Uh, so it, it but yes, we, we can be a part of that. And the one way that we're part of it goes back to my idea of scalability. Uh, if I'm looking at one neuron at, at a time, uh, it's going to take a long time. If I can image a, a billion neurons a day, then then all of a sudden it becomes something that is, is really useful. And I'm not saying that I can, but this is the, this is, this is, and certainly I know a lot of other people that are working on this. Now, if you, if we do that, we still are not quite sure that we're going to be able to do, do mind uploading. Um, can we upload the mind, the, can we do uploading of C. elegans with the 360 neurons or whatever they have, just because we know where they are and how they're firing, I, you know, I don't think that we can. So this is where AI becomes very interesting. Uh, and one of your uh, guests was Gary Marcus, uh, who did the Kluge. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think set an excellent stage for the idea that our focus shouldn't be entirely on the neuroscience, you know, the, the beauty of neuroscience, because there's a lot of waste. And there are a lot of problems that evolution has built in, and we can skip a lot of those steps. And AI allows us to skip a lot of those steps. Uh, and, and we can do things a lot better with computers and through, through imaging algorithms, for instance, than the brain can do. Now, how that all ties into consciousness and identity, that's, that's an issue that unfortunately nanotronics is not working on, uh, but is certainly of philosophical interest to me. But it, you know, I was reading an article in the New York Times about, uh, comparing, uh, one of your company's products, which, if I remember from the top of my head, you know, the, the, the default situation right now, if you want to scan the brain of a mouse, for example, would take you about a day per slice. And one of your products had the ability to do, uh, three slices for 15 minutes or something like that. Oh, more, yeah, more than that. So we can look at, um, I could look at 12 slides with four slices on it in a matter of, uh, even when that article was written a year ago, we can now do this in a matter of three minutes. Oh, wow. So now <laughs> what the, what you do with that information then becomes the tricky thing. Mm-hmm. So in that particular case, what we're looking at is neurogenesis in the hippocampus, which is to do with for- formation of memories and whether you can continue to uh, build memories late in life, which now they think you can. And we're also looking at how toxicity affects the, that, that mm-hmm. rate of change. So we can learn something very specific that way. Now, this, this is something where in, you know, in, inductive experimentation will lead to really good results, I think. Uh, if, if the, the more people that are running tests like that, whether it's run with my equipment or run with somebody else's equipment, or uh, the, the more we can start digging in to see what that means beyond uh, one specific application. Uh, you know. and, and maybe we're not like all the ways, we, we can't see all the way to, you know, mind uploading and whole brain emulation, but we certainly can see that this is a crucial step towards whole brain simulation. Yes. And, and, and perhaps you can tell us um, how relevant is the news, for example, that uh, Dr. Markham's uh, project recently got a billion dollars worth of funding committed for the next 10 years from the European Union. Union. Well, and, and also the new brain project here in the United By States. By President Obama, yes. Uh, you For know, hundred million dollars, if I remember. A hundred million dollars now, but there, it'll be billions in the end. Um, and I, I have, I, I think that it's, I have mixed feelings about it. Quite honestly, I, I think that what I think it's really important work, whether it's best done by the government or not, uh, mm-hmm. is a question. But I don't mind the government spending money on it because it will spur competition. So just the way the Genome Project got Venture involved and mm-hmm. increased it by a few years and got that completed because of the few years, it raises awareness, gets a lot of people competing with it, uh, in it. Uh, I think it, that it's, it's wonderful f- for that, for that reason. Um, 
otherwise the only the danger is that it's like the Clinton and Bush nanotech where it's just not defined well enough. So you have yes, we're going to look at the brain. Um, we all do want to do that, and a lot can come out of that. But that money alone doesn't tell us what's going to come out of that. That yeah. takes creativity, and maybe creates maybe a commercial incentive is a great way to do it. What technologies, you know, what types of biotech can we find, and what types of computer uh, computer uh, algorithms can be developed because of it? That's where it's going to get interesting. It's going to be interesting when when Google has that information and can do something with it. It's going to be interesting when smaller companies such as ourselves can do something with it. Yeah, but so I was thinking that companies like you who are in the field of nanoscale imaging uh, are very well positioned perhaps strategically to benefit from that trend both in Europe and in America right now, pushing towards, uh, uh, you know, advances in, in, in whole brain simulation because, as we discussed, you know, you are providing the next... Uh, sort of high quality level of imaging that those people in term I believe require in order to do what their goal is right yeah so yeah that- and, and, and it, what's really great about it um, and it, it's not necessarily just that I mean there there are other groups commercial groups that are doing the same thing it's connecting different labs and different researchers so you know there's there's a, a, a very uh, there's another really small company in San Francisco called 3Scan that that does, that has a really interesting way of imaging that we could collaborate with and then there's you know it it, it it sort of opens up this community to say well we need we need a lot of collaboration to make this stuff happen some company might be good at machine learning all the other might be good so absolutely and, it, and, I, and it's something that is accessible to smaller companies to get involved with. And whether whether we get government money for it or not doesn't so much matter to me. Uh, it's it's how interested the public is and how interested other scientists are in digging in and how interested investors are. I think think mm-hmm. that's it. So so let me go back to the issue of the technological singularity then. And as you said, your views on the topic have evolved. So I would kind of muddy the water by giving two quotes of you and ask you to sort of clear out the situation for us. So on the one hand, in one of the articles that I read by you on your blog, you say you end up the the article by saying death is a reality. Singularity is not. And, and you know, that's a Um, horrible quote that takes the last sentence of of a long article. I think that, uh, you know, singularity is not currently a reality. That doesn't mean that, Singularity will not happen, um, but death will happen, at least death of biological, our biological wet cells. <laughs> this will eventually happen. And so the point I think I, in, in, in that blog, I think the point I was making is that we still have the existential problem of worrying about dying, even if we don't have disease. So then, you know, I, you know, then you, you, instead of worrying about getting cancer, you worry about getting hit by a bus, um, because eventually, there, there's some, you know, whether it's a thousand years or two thousand years or a hundred years from now, something is going to happen where you, where this body will cease to exist. Um, it's, it, it's just statistically not possible for that not to occur. Now, the singularity, I think I've learned a lot more about the singularity and I, I more as a, a hybrid of technology and, and, you know, taking inorganic uh, approaches and computational approaches along with biological. And that combination, I think, could have a much longer-term effect. You know, I also, though, I don't know if you care about this, but I come to it from a very personal place of being absolutely, spending so much of my life being absolutely terrified of that. And then... I got cancer right before my daughter was born, so my first child, and the, you know, the prognosis was not great for me. So here I'm facing my own mortality, and at the same time, facing that, uh, you know, that I that I may not be there as a father for my daughter. Uh, this is all of my other previous existential crises coming together for the grand, um, you know, big A or you know. Big A anxiety. Uh, and I've coped with that somewhat. Um, and I, I kind of accepted the fact, I, you know, I, I kind of took this position of, you know, 
why would I be afraid of nothingness? Yes, it's natural for me to be afraid of it, uh, but I don't want to spend my life in dread. So as we're working for technological advancement, which I think is wonderful, I don't want to get into any type of delusion or which will eventually lead me to fear again if I think that I've avoided death and then and then something scary like this occurs again. Hmm. So there's a little bit of self-protection, but there's also a little bit of, of I, I, I feel a little bit of intellectual honesty with facing mortality as hard as it is. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that, uh, and I, one of the, the articles about you that I was reading said that you were given about 50-50 chance of survival uh, uh, when you when you were diagnosed with that cancer, which is not a, not very good odds, <laughs> I would say. Um, I mean, it, it depends. It's it's a point of view. But for me, if I'm given that, that's basically like flipping a coin. It, and, yeah, it, it was. It was and, absolutely flipping a coin. And it's uh, you know, and that kind of uncertainty is is incredibly hard to deal with. Um, so you have to assume the worst as much as you assume the best if you're logical. So so how did that impact on, on, on everything, on your work, on your views on immortality, on your views on religion, on your views on the singularity? Yeah, it, it affected all of those things. Um, so to start with that, my, my views on religion, I've been an atheist for a long time. So I... You know, I, I didn't have a religious awakening or a loss of religion. Um, I had that when I was 14 years old when I went and saw a Samuel Beckett play called Endgame and, let, and left an absolute horror when I realized, you know, when I was faced with this idea of eternal nothingness and a world without me, you know, the ultimate egotism uh, a 14 year old that still actually still lives on. You know, I, I remain kind of a Woody Allen esque view on this for the rest of my life. But so, I, I, religion had had no effect. I, I didn't believe in God then, and I don't believe in God now. Uh, creatively, it strangely opened me up a lot because it, it uh, I, I got rid of a lot of fear uh, of that. Um, so I, I, I would have never uh, thought of writing a poetry book. I've been writing poetry my whole life, but I would have never thought of publishing it and I submitted to some journals and got these published. I would have never done that because I never considered myself a good poet. But then I didn't care. I wanted to get it out there. I could be dead. <laughs> I might as well get it out there. What do I have to lose? Nothing could be as bad as being diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> so it creatively, it did, it did great things. And also, there was there was a kind of interesting uh, sequestration of just be, be, not be, being able to be as mobile as I was before. I used to travel a lot. I used to stay active all the time. So I avoided existential issues by doing all the time, and I still do. And obviously, as you can say, by all those things that I'm working on, I'm sure some of that has to do with avoiding the tough questions. Uh, but when, you know, when I couldn't go anywhere, I had to channel it somewhere, and I channeled it into this what eventually became um, the the uh, the work for the super resolution that has to do with my my that eventually became my company my poetry book and I started playing a type of music that was completely expressive of what I was going through and I and I had never realized I had the potential to do that so creatively it was very good for that with the singularity I didn't think about the singularity at the time uh, it, it it wasn't uh, I you know I, I it, I, I was much more, um, I was actually looking at philosophy from a completely different angle. I was reading Heidegger and I was, you know, I was reading Sartre and I was, so I, I was, I was trying to look at the philosophers who dealt with, with crises and, and death and. I would recommend Epicurus and, oh, and absolutely. Lucretius, especially Lucretius, the Rerum Natura has fantastic quotes on death. Oh, well, you know, Epicurean philosophy, by the way, was hugely important to me. I should have mentioned that right away. This letter that he wrote on his deathbed, where he would write letters to his friends, thanking them for having been in his life, nothing to fear. I mean, that, you know, those are the models of where you want to get to. You know, that, I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. So, First thing I wanted to do when I went to, to Athens is try to get a sense of 
this conflict between Plato and Epicurus and what these different schools of thought about death. And I, I was very interested in that. So I wasn't thinking about the technological singularity, even though I was creating a technology that just happened to be this, this, uh, this super resolution, which in the end could have something to do with the technological singularity, strangely, but mm-hmm. it wasn't on my mind at that moment. So let me ask you this then, and that may be a tough question to stomach, but uh, let's see. You know, despite of the recent revelations about Lance Armstrong's performance-enhancing drugs, uh, I've read his book, It's Not About the Bike, because, yeah. you know, I've had an indirect experience with cancer when oh. I was 13. Uh, my mother actually had a long st- long-standing fight with cancer for probably seven years, and finally, at about 38 and a half, she passed away. She had oh, limbic cancer. So sorry. And she went through everything, through radiation therapy, through chemotherapy numerous times. She lost her hair. She lost her teeth. It, she was in horrendous pain, so she had to take enormous amounts of painkillers. It, it was very tough. Um, anyway, but then I read Lance Armstrong's book called It's Not About the Bike. And in, net, in retrospect, he says in that book that cancer was, in retrospect, the best thing that ever happened to him. Now, looking back at your sort of creating creative flourishing and the way that you decide, found courage to publish your poetry, to go and do your music, to discover the inventions that you, you did and stuff like that, do you think that in a way that was blessing in disguise or that's far-fetched? Well, you know, life gives you what it gives you. There's not, there's nothing special about my place. The universe doesn't care about me. And if, if that's what happens, that's a part of my experience that, you know, I don't regret. It's, um, now, would, would I want to do it again in order to become more creative again? Absolutely not. Uh, but there's, there's something interesting with this Lance Armstrong thing that you bring up. And, you know, you know, I, I've sort of railed against Lance Armstrong because he, that book had a big effect on me too. I mean, I was, it was very inspiration to me and it turns out to be this enormous disappointment, you know, just doing whatever he could and hurting people and, or lying and doing everything to get to the top after that. This is a danger that I think is not just because maybe he's, he has some personality flaws, but there is a danger to um, the urgency that you feel after having cancer that I think it can actually be dangerous. And, you know, he stepped over people and hurt people um, in order to win with the knowledge that life is short or whatever. He, I mean, I, don't, I can't, I certainly can't speak for what was going on in, in Lance Armstrong's mind. Um, but I, I can't, I have to balance that kind of urgency with what Peter Thiel always says. I thought really like, he says, you know, like, you know, you know, take, do things that are long-term life is long. And I think that is, that goes so counter to that feeling of urgency that you have to create after you've been sick and you think I'm certainly going to die in the next couple of years. So I've got to get everything done. And I think probably the more healthy attitude is the Peter Thiel attitude and the less healthy attitude is the Lance Armstrong attitude. And whether I would have written a poetry book or not is not of enormous significance. What's more of significance is if I'm a good father, whether I, you know, whether I'm able to contribute in a wider sense through, you know, through uh, my company, through teaching, through whatever it might be. So, you know, I would say, yeah, it, 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 it probably did inspire those things to happen, but oh no, that's not the most important thing. Okay, so we are kind of approaching the end of our conversation here today, unfortunately, even though I sure. have to say I'm enjoying it immensely. No, me too. And I just want to touch on one other issue that I find very interesting in you. That reminded me very much to um, an issue that was exhibited by Albert Einstein when I was reading Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of him. And that's the issue of determinism and free will. So Yeah, I talk about this a lot, don't I? Can you tell I drive my, I drive my wife crazy. She, my, my daughter actually is now using this as an excuse. To, you know, when she does something wrong, she says, 
but daddy, you know I have no free will, you know. So I, I, I've talked about this stuff so much in my house now. I think you deserve it too. <laughs> I do deserve it. It's so can you elaborate a little bit and, and tell us first of all what's your view, the, the gist of it? On well, I, I take a science, I, I take a scientist, naturalist perspective on things, and it's it's reductive. It's it's everything. There's nothing that behaves differently than physics allows it to behave. Um, our brains don't behave differently. There's no supernatural force at act. Everything can be, everything has the potential to have some type of recur recursive logic, uh, and some, some type of regression analysis done on it. Doesn't mean that we can't ever do that, but the universe will go on however it wants, regardless of what I want it to do. I have no power over that. Um, I have no power over myself. Now, the illusion of power is good enough because there's nothing I can, you know, I, I, that, that illusion of control, it doesn't exactly change what you do. The reason I care about it, it just kind of changes the way you deal with the judicial system. It kind of changes the way that you view um, the supernatural forces, the way that you view your importance as opposed to the importance of other creatures. Um, so there, there are a number, I think, of larger social impacts, but I don't believe that, that, that I, I, I do believe it's, we live in a deterministic universe. Now, as far as I know, both Einstein and Newton were sort of proponents of that view. Uh, and, and I think it was Newton who said that if you know all the, the, the position and the direction and the mass of all the atoms of the universe and then, you know, you have an impact, then you'd be able to deduce everything that happens in the universe after that point, you know, based on that previous information. But, you know, don't you think that this would have, and you just mentioned, but how do you deal then with, with the issue of ethics then and, and, and personal responsibility most of all? Uh, I mean, well, whether it's your daughter doing her homework or, or her chores or whether it's a criminal. It's my daughter perverting my ideas. <laughs> no, uh, the, the, um, the, well, the way you do we have the sense of, of being free agents, whether we are or not. Now, that that sense is, you know, all that really matters as far as, you know, how, you know, I, I am still have the sense of choosing. Now, how we deal with that, I think, has to be dealt with more compassionately than we, we currently do. I think a punitive uh, justice system, you know, we should address the fact and, you know, people have dealt with this in neuroscience. David Eagleman's dealt with this a lot lately in talking about how different lesions, if you have the lesion in a certain area, you you are predisposed to be a psychopath. You, you, you get rid of that lesion and you no longer are. Now, if the court, if courts don't take that into account, then you're treating everybody as if the, in, in a very inhumane way. So should people be incarcerated? Absolutely. If, if you're dangerous to society, you're dangerous to others, you should be, and taken off of uh, off the streets, but but punitive actions um, for the sake of either vengeance or because you think somebody is a bad person, I think you know I, I think they they don't have that control in that sense. They were determined to do that, so you have to deal with more compassion. That doesn't mean that you don't jail somebody. Doesn't mean you don't tell your daughter to do her homework. You know, the the feeling of agency is always there. But the reality is that we are humans and we are, we are, we are natural beings determined to make whatever mistakes we're going to make. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a fascinating topic and I'd love to talk more about it, but unfortunately we're really running out of time. Sure, so sure. Let me ask you the last two questions, which is, the first one is, where can people find more about you and your work? What's the best place? Well, the place that I would go right now is to to look at the stuff that the company is doing. So, uh, www.nanotronicsimaging.com. If people want to see what I'm doing, um, to see some of my artistic work and some of my scientific publications, I have a website which is matthewcputman.com. Um, and from there, you can find links to some essays I've written to to the blog that you referred to, which are really more essays, and I don't write it regularly, but. Uh, you can find links to all of that stuff. You can listen to some of this crazy music that I do. Uh, you can read these poems that are science-y poems, uh, certainly from a scientific uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. um, Isn't artistic endeavor, be it music, be it poetry, 
a great example of, you know, exhibiting free will. <laughs> well, it's it's an example of... I just couldn't point. resist asking yeah. that, I'm sorry. Well, it's funny because we call it free jazz because you are, you know... Precisely. So, but you, you, so, yeah, the, the thing that, the thing is that when you're, it actually feels exactly the opposite. When you're playing free jazz, you have no idea where it's coming from, you know, but that, I mean, that has nothing really to do with the philosophical point, but it, it's not, it's not contemplated. So you're, you're playing and you're actually surprised to go back and listen to who you were, you know, so it, it, it doesn't exactly address the philosophical point, but the freedom is, is an unconscious freedom, completely unconscious. So you do feel almost as if you're, you're acting on your own, you know, without, without acknowledging your limbs doing it. What the Zen Buddhist monk would say spontaneously. Exactly. No, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. So Matt, Matthew, please, um, let's, let's finish our interview here with my uh, last question, which is, do you have a single message that you would like um, our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? What would you like them to take after that whole one hour of us covering a bunch of topics? What, in your view, is the the gem that they can leave with today? Well, I, it may go back to to your first point that you know I, I have a, a a bio where I've done a lot of things. Don't be intimidated to to jump into the future. Um, it is a, a place that we can all participate in uh, and can participate from many different perspectives. So participate as a scientist, even if you don't have a scientific background, learn some science. We all have tools to learn it. Try music. If you don't know how to play, beat on the keys, you'll find something interesting. Experiment and inducti- inductively Go back and find what information is there, even if you didn't know before. Matthew Putman, thank you very much for being with us today.